The Brandon McMillan Podcast is brought to you by Lucy Pet Food. Why feed Lucy Pet Food? Because they specialize in gut health, which is vital to the overall health of your dog. I feed it to all my dogs because it works. Go check them out today at lucypetfood.com. All right, welcome to the Brandon McMillan Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining. A little later on the show, we're going to be talking with America's veterinarian, Dr. Marty Becker. This guy is an encyclopedia of information, and we're going to be talking about all the things that I'm sure you've always wanted to ask a veterinarian but never did ask. So so great guy to listen to. Be sure to stay tuned for that. Uh, of course, as always, we're going to start the show off with a little Q&A. Okay, Jessica writes in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. She says, hello, Brandon. I have two labs that are the sweetest boys on the planet. The only problem with them is after five years, they still like to dig holes in my backyard. Some days it looks like a bomb went off back there. They dig so much. Please help. I'm at my wits end. Thanks for all you do, Jessica. Well, Jessica, it sounds like you have uh, dogs just like, well, it sounds like you have Labradors actually. Let's just start there. But um you know, believe it or not, teaching dogs not to dig in the backyard is actually one of the easiest things in the world. Uh, it's going to get kind of gross, so uh, brace yourself. And anybody who is grossed out by poop, I suggest you turn off the, uh, the podcast right now. So how do we stop a dog from digging in the backyard? It's very simple. All we do is we take the hole and fill it with some, you guessed it, some poop. That's all you got to do. So here's what I want you to do. And since it sounds like they, they dig a lot of holes, it's going to take a few days. But what I want you to do is every time they dig a hole, I want you to go out there and I want you to take their poop and put it inside of the hole they're actually digging, the one they're focusing on. And then you're going to lightly cover it up with dirt and that's it. Now, you're going to have to do this with pretty much every hole back there, especially if they, if they keep digging them. What's going to happen is the next time they go to that hole, they're going to go over there. They're going to start to smell something under there they don't like. Dogs typically don't like the taste of their own poop. Okay, now if they're a puppy, they might start digging that. So it sounds like your dogs aren't puppy. You said they're, what are they, five, six years old? So all you have to do is put the poop in the hole, lightly cover it up with some dirt. Now, what's going to happen though? They're going to start digging a new hole. Rinse and repeat. It's very simple. This is one of the simplest things to, to, to stop. People all over the world, they call me with this same problem. And all I have to do is give them this advice. Just put the poop in the hole lightly cover it up. They're not going to, I mean, you ever notice that a dog doesn't start, you know, digging its own poop. They don't like hanging around their own poop. Once they poop, they actually get the hell away from it. So put the poop in the hole, lightly cover it up with dirt. Your problem will, will be, will be stopped. And probably I would say you do this for about three or four days. Your problem is in the rear view mirror. Um, like I said, you're going to have to rinse and repeat a few times because it sounds like they like to dig lots of holes, but guarantee after a few days, your problem's out the window. So great question. Very common problem, by the way. And let not your heart be troubled. Your problem will stop if you do this. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. So do you have a dog that their nails grow like weeds like I do? My dog Lulu, she's a chihuahua. And anybody who has a chihuahua, they can attest that their nails literally grow like Edward Scissorhands. And because of this, I, I've, I've tried a lot of different nail clippers over the years, but the one I like right now that I'm using consistently is called the Zen Clipper Precise. And what it is, it's this, it's this really cool clipper that actually features this little laser etched marking 
for consistent measuring. So what this means is you determine how much nail you wanna cut and easily adjust the blade using the thumb wheel. So in other words, if your dog moves around a lot, no matter if they're moving or not, it actually is going to clip the, the nail exactly where you adjust that wheel. So that's the cool part about it. It clips the tip, not the quick. And trust me, if you ever if you ever got the quick of your dog, some of you, I'm, I'm sure some of you have, they never wanna get their nails clipped again. It's, it's a nightmare. So. Uh, this thing, it's, it's awesome. It has a sharp stainless steel blade that quietly clips instead of crushing the nail. And I've used those, those cheapos that actually crushes the nail. And then when I pull those out and my dog sees that, they, they just run for the hills. Give this one a try. It, it's worked on my chihuahua. And if I got her over her fear of clipping nails, then you, you probably can too. So for 20% off and free shipping on the entire cart, enter the promo code Brandon when you order at petppi.com. That's petppi.com. Go check them out right now. Does your pet struggle with missing you while you're at work? Have they reached their senior years and need a little help feeling like themselves again? Or are you simply just looking for an awesome daily supplement for your currently healthy dog? Well, Pet Relief is on a mission to change what healthy means for pets. As the number one most trusted pet CBD company out there, they're doing just that. Their line of all natural, safe, and organic supplements are perfect for pets, no matter what their age or health status is. From CBD hemp oils to bite-sized supplements called Edibites, capsules, topicals, and hemp protein bars. There's a holistic option for every one of your four-legged friends. And the best part is their website provides a usage calculator where you can get a custom product recommendation based on your pet's specific needs. To give Pet Relief a try, simply use my promo code BRANDON for 20% off your total purchase. To shop now and read more about CBD for your pet, check out Pet Relief's website, www.petrelief.com. That's spelled P-E-T-R-E-L-E-A-F.com. And by the way, one last note, I use their CBD on my dog, Lulu, she's a 14 and a half old chihuahua, and I've literally watched her life do a 180. They have amazing CBD products, so go check them out right now. All right, joining us right now on the podcast, he's known as America's veterinarian. You know you're a big shot when you get the nickname like that. He's been on Dr. Oz. He's pretty much been on everything. He has a million Facebook followers. He's an encyclopedia of information. Please welcome the great Dr. Marty Becker. Thanks for coming on the show. And thanks, by the way, I know you're in vacation in Hawaii right now. Um, thanks for slumming it with us here uh, in the in the studio. It's so nice to be over here and, and relaxing and also also still doing work on Fear Free. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that. Really, if you've been hearing about Fear Free, there's now Fear Free uh, shelters. There's people that have graduated from a course. There's Fear Free Happy Homes. There's FearFreePets.com. There's veterinarians from 46 countries, 75,000 people in just a little over three years have become fear-free certified. And really what it is, it just looks at the emotional well-being of animals. I mean, it's stuff you talk about on your show. It's stuff you and I have talked about um, in many meetings privately. But it's one thing to take your, your pet to the veterinarian for physical well-being. It's sick or injured or you're doing preventive care like vaccinations. But it's a whole other thing for emotional well-being, a pet that doesn't have noise phobias it isn't think it's going to die going to the veterinarian or the groomer and so this you know if you if you go to fearfreehappyhomes.com you can kind of see the whole ecosystem you can see how it's all set up but you literally will adopt a pet at a fear-free shelter lives in a fear-free happy home goes to a fear-free veterinarian referred to a fear-free groomer trainer boarding daycare and all of us look at the emotional well-being of animals what was your incentive to uh to to start that Besides, besides, besides the obvious. 
Yeah, I was at, I was at a conference in Vancouver Island up there where Megan and stuff are now, and there was um, a boarded veterinary behaviorists. A lot of people don't realize there are boarded veterinary behaviorists. There's actually 87 the American College of Veterinary Behavior. She gave a talk about fear, about how fear is the worst thing a social species could experience and how it causes permanent damage to the brain. That those of us in veterinary medicine were causing repeat severe psychological damage to pets by what we were doing or not doing. That's a hard pill to swallow. No, you know, nobody gets involved with animals, whether you're a veterinarian, a trainer, a groomer, to make life worse for animals, to realize you're actually going against your oath to prevent or relieve animal pain and suffering was, was jarring to say the least and caused me to, um, you know, I literally felt nauseous. This was in 2009, just felt sick to my stomach thinking I've loved animals. I'm compassionate. I didn't. I didn't realize what I thought was collateral damage could actually be prevented. So, went back to the board of veterinary behaviorists and a bunch of PhD behaviorists and figured, okay, how do you do this? How do you look at the emotional well-being of animals during these different procedures? And I can tell you, in you know, now we are uh, over ten years later. We call it taking the pet out of petrified and putting the treat into treatment, but. You go to a hospital with embrace fear-free techniques, and that dog will drag you in. Normally, in a hospital, you drag the dog in, and then the dog drags you out. It's the opposite. Now, the dog drags you in, and you try to drag it out. You can't get it to leave because there's all these tasty treats inside there. Give some examples of what, what would cause a dog fear. Well, if you think about a dog or a cat or a horse, they're all basically a one-year-old child. If any of the listeners out there have a a one-year-old child or a grandchild or a niece or nephew or somebody, think of when they're one-year-old. They have no idea why a procedure benefits, and they're going in to get their, their pediatric shots. They need ear, tubes in their ears. They've got uh, tooth erupting at sore. When they go to seek health care against their will, they have no idea why the procedure benefits them, and they can't anticipate or expect the relief of pain even if it's moments away. And that's the same for an animal their whole life. They have no idea why a vaccination, why examining a sore ear, looking at gums that look like a flamethrower, a wound, an abscess, a torn nail, an arthritic hip. How does this benefit me? And they don't can't anticipate or expect the relief of pain. So everything that happens, you know, they go in that first time for a visit, happy-go-lucky, shelter pet, young, inquisitive, and they get in there, and then they they smell a vertical surface outside the building, and these pets have urinated on it with warning signals. So they smell that. Now they're on alert. Then they get on the scale and more uh, warning signals. Now they're put up on a counter in the exam room. And, uh, Brandon, and I don't know if it's your, your place out there in L.A., but I doubt the dogs are on the table, and cats are usually shooed off the counter at homes. And here we put them off the equivalent of a table or a counter that's slippery and elevated and cold. And then we have direct eye contact, and then we take their temperature, which is foreign, and then finally we give them three, uh, you know, three bee stings in the form of vaccinations and set them down, and they haul ass out of there because mm-hmm. now they know the door they came in is the door they escaped from, and everything is negative to them. And so what you do in Fear Free is you start out, uh, you don't bring the carrier out a week before the morning of the visit. You uh, you preheat or pre-cool the car so, you know, it stays. Um, right now, I think in northern Idaho where we live, it's 30 degrees for a high today. You don't go from 72 to 30 to 72. You go from 72 to 72 to 72. You start this magic carburetor of pheromones. You have the pet come in hungry. 
you play a certain music on the way in. When you get to the vet clinic, you go check in and you go back out and just wait in, in your vehicle. That's the waiting room, not in that stew pot of stress. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the waiting area. Uh, when you go in, you're not put up on the table unless you want to be. You're given the choice of where you're examined. We avoid eye contact. And then when it comes time to be vaccinated, we use distraction techniques, which is often a pretzel rod with peanut butter, easy cheese on it, or we'll even write the pet's name on a little silicone mat. And while it's licking its own name off in liver paste or easy cheese or whipped cream, that's when you vaccinate. So you've, you've removed the negative and inserted the positive. And it's not about remodeling the clinic. It's about remodeling your animal handling, Brendan, and then using their, their natural thing to love tasty treats. It can't be treats that don't taste really good. It's got to be really good uh, treats to overcome the fear, anxiety, and stress that they naturally face. You know, I never thought of that. I never, I mean, obviously I've, I've always thought of what uh, the steps I should be taking to make sure my dog's trip to the vet is going to be as comfortable as possible. But you broke it down in in such a a science that it's so layman's terms where anyone can understand it. I mean, you were talking about when the dogs mark on the outside of the building, they're sending up a, they're sending up like a, like a fear signal, you called it, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's funny? You can take feces from. There's some studies. We're we're a research based uh, group, and so there's. If you go to fearfreepets.com, if you're the type of your science nerd, you can find all these studies. We know, for example, colors pets like they like pastel colors versus white. Uh, anything that has stripes or pattern on it is a term called apostatism in their in their brain. That means mankind. So we if we always say in fear free, if it looks good on an Easter egg, it looks good to pets. So we have pastel colors and solid colors. We know which spectrums of lighting. They don't like fluorescent lights because of the hum. They like uh, LED lights are the best. And we, uh, and outside what they'll do, you can take the feces of a dog that's stressed, like going to the vet. And uh, this probably sounds gross, but put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in a cooler and then go to a place where the dog is happy up at your, up at your ranch. You know, they're out for a walk and take that and then take them to a third place and put them out and you'll notice dogs go over to the one where it's in its happy place and they'll sniff it and sniff it and sniff it and then typically mark on it if it's a male dog if it's uh and if you take the one that's from the stressful place outside the vet clinic that dog will come up to it and start to approach it and then it's like they hit a, a star wars uh force field there they just fly off they won't even come up uh, and and sniff it because of those fear pheromones so there's these little landmines out there that are telling them, go back, go back, go back, go back. And then it gets to the portico, you know, the holding up a little porch or if it's a strip mall, it's in the center and those male dogs have urinated there and their, their brainstem is telling them, go back, go back, go back, go back. And yeah. they're trying to pull yeah. out of the leash and yeah. you know, lay prostate on the ground and, and, uh, you're, you've already lost the battle if it gets to that point. Yeah. 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 Now you've, so basically you've, uh, so you're fear-free. You've figured out a system to make it as, as little to no stress as possible to the dog. Have you learned so much where you can actually apply more things? Yeah. It, it, one of the things that you see, a lot of dogs, you can't, it's impossible to know what their history is. So many of these pets now are shelter pets, and they've come from um, to even different countries, but certainly across the country. You know, there's groups that bring them from the South called the Underhound Railroad, which every time I hear that freaking phrase that makes me smile the underhound railroad brings these pets up you don't know what their his their history of trauma is and so for those those pets that we don't know it often takes more it takes 
compression garments like thunder shirts. It takes it takes pheromones. It takes nutraceuticals. There's several really good nutraceuticals, and in many cases, it takes pharmaceuticals. There's most of the time when we we see cats now they're on uh, they're on a product called gabapentin, which is a generic product. It's very inexpensive. It's, it works very well, has very low side effects, and most of the nail trims that we do for dogs, we use a we use a product uh, called Trazodone. Again, it's a pharmaceutical. It's a generic, very powerful, very safe, very effective. And just think about just think about this. When anybody at home that's ever tried to trim their dog's nails, there's a couple of things people don't want to do at home. One is trim their dog's nails, and two is to clean their anal glands out. <laughs> so I can tell you some funny stories about that. Don't go on YouTube and and see and think, well, I can do that. So this nail this nail trim, they they take their dog in to get their dog's nails trimmed. It goes through exactly. It's picked up at the front counter. The dog knows exactly. Goes through this door. Goes back into treatment goes by the certain treatment tub and here comes two or three people to hold it down to trim its nails. Often when they come out, you can smell their implants are expressed. Uh, sometimes they've, they've defecated or urinated. Sometimes you, you know, their muzzle is tied shut mm-hmm. with some gauze or a muzzle, a basket muzzle or cloth muzzle is put on them. Which I can't imagine is, is going to be great for the, uh, uh, for the, for the psyche of the dog. Cause it already, it already knows it's being put in a situation where, if it knows it's getting muzzled, it knows it's about to be put in a traumatic situation. Yeah, and you know these people that that sometimes people in a veterinary prof- profession that work with them, they feel sore the next day from wrestling. You know, wrestling a pet, and I think you you think you feel sore. How would you like to be this twenty pound dog that has six hundred pounds of people holding you down? Yeah. <laughs> you think you think the human is sore? Yeah, but it's yeah. so simple when you when you. When you t- you don't take it back to the same place where it's experienced trauma, you know we we take them to the doctor's office, we take them into radiology uh, where the X-ray machine is, we take them into the comfort room where you say goodbye to pets, I take them outside on a bench, and then we utilize uh, you know a pharmaceutical that calms the pet. Uh, they're not anesthetized; there's just something to calm them, but it has a dissociative effect, and basically that's the way it is for these these pets. All right, stick around. We'll be right back. Does your dog chew? Uh, I'll bet they do, especially if you have a boxer. (laughs) Producer Sue always knows that I make fun of the boxers. Okay. Leave the boxers alone. (laughs) Okay. Anybody with a boxer out there is going to turn the uh, podcast off now. Okay. So if your dog chews, let's get back to that point. Your dog needs Wonder Snacks. And make sure you spell this right. Wonder Snacks, S-N-A-X-X. Wonder Snacks is the only rawhide alternative made from a patent-pending safe hide. Okay, so what does that mean? Safe hide is made with a traditional beef hide. It's minced, whipped, and baked to create a very soft, flexible treat. And it's four times more digestible than your traditional rawhides. So because of that, you'll love having that peace of mind during your dog's snack time. And your dog will love the multiple flavors. Wonder Snacks are made in a variety of shapes and sizes, and they're now available at your local PetSmart store or shop for them online at PetSmart.com. Make sure, once again, you type in the search bar, Wonder Snacks as it's spelled. That's Wonder and then S-N-A-X-X. So years ago, I used to think that all dogs had bad breath, and that's just the way it is. But as time went on, I started learning a little more about it, and I started learning that a dog's bad breath could potentially be a sign of dental disease which is actually the number one illness in pets, which leads to heart failure, kidney disease, and even shorter lifespans. Well, teeth is a product that you easily add to your dog's or cat's water bowl. 
It's made with Protocin 42, which is a prebiotic powder that safely targets dental disease where it starts below the gum line. Teeth is all natural, human grade, and veterinary approved that is non-toxic and safe. There's no artificial flavors, colors, fillers, or preservatives. It's tasteless and odorless and promotes strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Teeth is brought to you by Primal Health. And for 20% off and free shipping on the entire cart, and who does not love a deal, enter Brandon on their website at teethhealth.com. Now make sure you get this right. I'm not saying teeth, I'm saying teeth. That's T-E-E-F, as in Frank, health. Dot com. I've actually been using this on my Chihuahua Lulu for a little while now, and it's made her breath substantially better. And if you can make that breath better, then anything is possible. So go check them out right now. It's a great company. Tell me what you think of them and, and what are the pros and cons of CBD? Yeah, considering that the fact is, there's really no long-term studies on CBDs for dogs, correct? Yeah. You know what's funny? You go to, uh, you and I meet at some of these major conferences and it, it almost seems like about one out of every three booths is CBD. Oh <laughs> no, the, the, the conferences nowadays in the past two, three years, they're CBD conferences with some dog toys and beds around, around them. <laughs> that is a well, that is, that is really well put. It's, it's almost when we gather, we almost just think it's humorous how many of these there are. Well, here's the thing I have to I'm going to keep an open mind, and I'm a, I'm a big believer in integrative medicine. By the way, uh, we have several people on the this. There's 270 people on the Fear Free Advisory Group that are uh, that are really big into integrative medicine. That lead integrative medicine departments at at veterinary universities. So, I'm I'm into massage and acupuncture and and some essential oils and things like that. But CBD, there's one small study that shows that it has some uh, some effect for epilepsy in dogs that there are no other studies. And it's really funny. There's a, if people want to Google it, there's a really good uh, Washington Post article about how placebos work in pets. Because when you first think about it, well, how could a placebo work in a pet, right? It's either going to work or not work. The way the placebos work in pets is that the pet owner acts differently if they're giving something that they think their pet is going to benefit their pet. It's brilliant, brilliantly done study, but a lot of people that that swear that CBD works, I did it. It's a miracle. It's actually the placebo effect. So I'm keeping an open mind. And there's some new products out now that are are uh, certain strains of of uh, marijuana that are grown a specific strain that may be able to be given episodically for to reduce anxiety. So we're we're testing those right now, um, uh, a scientific way. And boy, if it worked, that would be. Uh, I'd, I'd have all my testing back in the '70s to thank for how far this research has come, Brent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, let me ask you something though, because as somebody who I, I use CBDs myself, and I've given CBDs to dogs that are uh, that are 14 years old, they're they're you know they're basically on their deathbed. We've got we're down to to months not years i've seen i've seen dogs that were literally they couldn't get off they couldn't get up off the floor they would struggle to walk up and down uh, even a curb or a couple steps and suddenly after being on cbd's for a couple weeks they're they're almost running around like a puppy again that can't be that can't be placebo there's got to be something in cbd's that that really is legit that you know like i said i mean there hasn't been long term studies on it but there has to be something in there with anti-inflammatory properties that actually causes the inflammation to either go away or, or 
or reduce it substantially. I'm, keep, I'm keeping an open mind because I've heard, I hear those stories as a practicing veterinarian. I've had people come in because, you know, if you if you give a chance to give CBD versus um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or steroidal anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's incredible. The one thing people have said in the past is there's, well, the pharmaceutical companies don't want it. Uh, trust me, there's 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 large veterinary pharmaceutical companies, you know, several of them based in Europe, that are putting a lot of research into that. If that proves to be true, in double-blind studies, which is the is what you need, where these are the the person giving it or the or the well, these are actually triple-blind studies because, of course, the pet would know which one it got, but the pet owner and the and the professional, nobody can know which what they're giving when they report their signs. But I'm hopeful. Um, again, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind, but I have to, I have to go back to what I know is true yeah. um, at this point. Yeah. But, but the one thing I would, the one thing I would say, Brendan, is they always say first do no harm. It's not going to do any harm. If, if you try uh, some of these and you might, you might get a recommendation from somebody because you've seen the studies where the potency is so different in certain brands. Not everybody is ethical. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so you want to get something where, you know, the thing is there, because if there's, if there's not the active product in it, then you decide it doesn't, doesn't work. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, for me, I've, I've, I put, uh, many dogs on CBDs cause I deal with dogs that are very, they're very old and they're, you know, they're ready to kick, they're ready to go. And in, in, in the next uh, few months, and I figured to myself, well, what's, you know, it's obviously CBDs are not going to kill the dog. The dog's already dying. So I want to see what these things can really do. And I've seen dogs that are, that are decrepit and they, all of a sudden they start running around again. It doesn't add any life, but it adds quality. Yeah. You know, you know what? And there, again, there's no harm. You know, one thing that comes up, Brandon, uh, this is an obvious question um, that comes up. People are like, well, the vet just wants to, you know, give them drugs. You know, they don't look at these things and, and they just want to run up the bill. Yeah. If you, if you don't mind, I'd like to address this a little bit about, tell some people some things about veterinary medicine they might not know. So, you know, here I am, I'm 65 years old. I've got an older sister that's a physician at 77. So I thought about, you know, you, you love science, you love medicine. You think about being a human doctor or a veterinarian. Well, you know, when my, when my sister sees a patient, let's say it's like my wife who had knee surgery. They come in knowing specifically where they hurt themselves. I, you know, I was on a motorcycle with my old boyfriend in college and I flew off and tore my knee and then I re-injured it teaching these kids to do something. This is where it hurts. And when they examine it, they'll start to move. Oh, not, not, oh that hurts too much. Or does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? Uh, when a dog comes in, they're lame. Then mm-hmm. when they're carrying a leg, you don't know if it's, is it the hip? Is it the knee? Is it the hock? Mm-hmm. Is it a torn toenail? Is there a thorn in the bottom of it? So one's coming out with specific injury. One's coming in with just lame. By nature, animals hide their problems. There's that old saying, sick is supper. So if it, in the wild, if it shows that it's sick or injured, it's going to be preyed upon. Mm-hmm. And unlike human medicine, where there's, you know, you have a, a, a doctor, an internist, a dentist, an optometrist, you might have a dermatologist, an OBGYN. There's a healthcare team of one, which is the veterinarian. And then pets age faster, about four years. You could just say four years for every human year. So it's it's much harder to 
get to the bottom of these problems. And that's why you have to do diagnostic testing as well. When you become a veterinarian, on average, you've it's eight years to become a veterinarian, four years of undergraduate and then four years of veterinary school. So you've lost eight years of earning capacity. And the average veterinarian now coming out of practice, or excuse me, coming out of school is $200,000 in debt. And you shouldn't be, you shouldn't, spend more than 20% of your starting salary on debt service. The average starting salary for a veterinarian right now is about $90,000. So what, how does that translate in something your listeners can understand? When I was in, went to veterinary school in 1976, there were 20 applicants for every opening in veterinary school. And you used to hear it's harder to get in veterinary school than medical school. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's only 1.4 applicant for every opening in veterinary school. That means if there's there's typically 3,000 openings every year in veterinary school, that means only 4,400 people are applying for 3,000 positions. Why? Why is there so few people applying? Because you can't make enough money to service your debt. You're going to end up a slave to this debt your entire life. This, the, the income that a veterinarian makes, uh, the income that the practice makes, and then the income that the veterans make is not enough to sustain a career. It, it sounds, it, it, when you go in there, when you go to the human doctor, you know, my wife just had knee surgery. It's $44,000 for knee surgery. Uh, our daughter, Michaela, who you know, Brandon, just had her dog had knee surgery. It was $3,400. So yeah. the difference in the knee surgery was more than a multitude of 10, but the ones covered under insurance and Nobody ever goes on to Yelp and complains to the doctor, the pharmacist about the cost, but it's it's easy prey to pick on a veterinarian, even though the costs are so much smaller. And one one thing people should know too, if you ever want to be a friend of the vet, uh, the suicide rates for the veterinary profession are higher than any other health profession. Why is it's that? It's a small business, long hours. No other business deals with life and death like we do. There's this uh, constant pressure on social media. And, you know, you might have to say goodbye to, uh, you know, you talked about these dogs that are in their last chapters of their life. You might have to say goodbye to one and grieve with the family and then go right back in and see a kitten. And it's a very tough profession financially and emotionally. Yeah. And and, and think about that when you get your vet about giving them a giving them a thank you or or a warm plate of cookies on a on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, that that's that was my my next question. Um, that must be the hardest part about being being a vet is the fact that a big part of your job is is euthanizing animals because they're in the at the end of their of their life. Well, th- well, think about this. Nobody nobody sees that much death. Yeah, uh, and unless you're working a, a, something like a slaughterhouse, I mean, yeah. you're in. No human doctor sees that amount of death. There's, and, and you know, the thing the connection is. You've been with a veterinarian with a pet at the end. I mean, we're so mostly connected with these families because we get to see them birth the earth a lot of times. I and mean, we've seen them the whole arc of that family through kids that were in grade school and now they've gone to college and you see the pet aging and they come back in. Most human doctors now, when you go, they know one organ. You know, they know your kidney or they know your knee. They don't know, they don't know that you and your whole family. That's the way the human model is. But it's both the greatest and the and the worst profession. It's the greatest because you're you are so emotionally connected with these families, and there's that love and there's trust, and you you get to pull this pet out of these crazy situations sometimes. But the saying goodbye part is is devastating. Yeah, no, I I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, 
We're talking with uh, Marty Becker, uh, America's veterinarian and the best looking veterinarian in the world. There's somebody else who's been named uh, the sexiest vet alive. Good friend of both of ours, Evan Anton. I'm sure Evan is listening to this right now. But Evan, sorry, you're you're the second sexiest vet uh, in America. Marty's I think no- it hurt. I think that hurts him. Don't you? <laughs> Let's talk about something that really interests me because this is something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Over the last about three or four years, new research suggests it's better to wait till your dog is around two years old to neuter them. Is that true? Back when I was in getting out of veterinary school, so this is in uh, in 1980, we started promoting early spay neuter because it was less expensive. It was it was safer, easier, and less expensive because the uterine tract is not developed or the testicles are are tiny. And also, you were going to, you know, Bob Barker. Uh, isn't that funny that Bob Barker is the one we think of with that last name about spay and neuter your pets? But Bob Barker did a hell of a job on the Price is Right. Spay and neuter your pets, spay and neuter your pets. So on the on the good side, we went from over 20 million uh, dogs and cats being euthanized every year in the early 80s to now it's around, uh, this year it's expected to be about 500,000. Which, although mm-hmm. still too much, is almost uh, almost all cats. Really, the vast majority are cats, and yeah. and very few are dogs. So, but what happened was we thought, okay, there. This was a story. They're going to be less roaming. They're going to be less aggressive, and you're going to save them from testicular cancer, uh, prostate cancer, mammary cancer if you spay neuter. Now, is this now is this spay and neuter neuter them? Early, early, before six. Yeah, they wanted you to do it. They wanted you to do it for six months, ideally around four months when you gave them their their rabies shot as early as four months, but six months. So, so, so here's so here's here's what happened. We thought, you know, if if you uh, neuter a dog early, yes, you're going to get less prostate cancer and testicular cancer, but those are very rare and easily to treat. Uh, I've never even seen a case of prostate cancer in my life in a dog, and I've been it over four decades. But testicular cancer rare, you take the testicles out. And if you do, if you spay a dog early, yes, you're going to get less uh, mammary cancer and ovarian cancer. But again, it's very easy to treat and very rare. Here's what we didn't know. When you get rid of this hormonal influence by spaying earlier, you're going to have more hemangiosarcoma and lymphosarcoma in both males and females. And that is extremely dangerous and extremely hard to treat. And moreover, we saw a lot of joint damage. And you think about it, there's there's testosterone and estrogen are there for a reason besides just reproduction, right? So what we've ended up doing is having uh, generations of dogs with cruciate problems and hip problems and knee problems. And so now the when I talk to somebody in the exam room at North Idaho Animal Hospital in Sandpoint, Idaho, I give people the facts, and and when they say, "Do you have a recommendation?" I say, "We're well, going to do your research, but I would wait until they've they're uh, a year, eighteen months, two years of age before you spay or neuter." And then people will find out, well, they can't board a dog if it's not spayed or neutered. So there's a really it's difficult. But if I had uh, let's say I had uh, Cutie Pie again, I I let him go a year before we neutered him. I'd let him go two years before I neutered him, if I did neuter him. Well, then I guess it's it's one of these catch-22 situations that, that you know, myself as a as a trainer that trains animals in in shelters, um, we're, we're put in a situation where you can't get a dog out of the shelter unless they're neutered or spayed. 
but also from a behavior standpoint, taking those taking those little things off, you know, in the back of a, a of a, a male dog, those those things they they do cause a lot of problems, especially when it comes to uh, 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 situations at dog parts. Um, I find I find male dogs when they're intact, I find they have a lot more behavioral issues, especially when it comes to aggression, territorial situations, than when they're taken off. How do we, where do we meet in the middle? Because I, no, look, I'm with you. I want to keep my dogs as safe as possible, as healthy as possible. But if you're saying to me that taking them off too early causes potential sarcoma, it causes a lot of, uh, you know, a joint pain, where do we meet in the middle and how do we, how do we, how do we solve this? I'm going to complicate this discussion just a little bit, Brandon. I've been in 89 countries, and if if anybody that's traveled around the world knows, most of the world do not do early spay neuter. If you're if you're going to Europe, let's just go to Europe, and you go to a dog park or you go on a walk, almost all those male dogs are intact, and there's such little aggression. Uh, a lot of us have never, you know, there's we have a lot of boarded behaviorists as part of fear free and things, and we. We often wonder what is different there. These dogs are on on flexi leads. They're out twenty, thirty feet away. They're past each other on the street. There's very little vocalization or aggression. What the hell is different? Or these dogs, you know, they're they're dogs, right? And a and a German Shepherd is a German Shepherd. But is it some different line? Have they been raised differently from from birth to be less reactive? And I don't know. Um, I, I probably, if I was, if it was my own dog right now, I'd probably let it go to two and get its full musculature, and then I would, uh, I would neuter. But there's also some. Uh, there used to be a product, a chemical castration that that made them sterile, but they still produce testosterone, and you didn't have all those effects, the aggressive effects you talk about. I'm not sure where this is going to end up. Um, the the one thing that's interesting, and and this might be the first uh, you're the first podcast to ever look at this uh, this issue, Brennan. We're not very far away from running out of dogs to adopt. And when you go, I'm on the board of five national organizations and five shelters, and most of the most of the shelters uh, where I'm at in northern Idaho and eastern Washington, they have to import dogs from the south. We get a lot of California Chihuahuas, and very few very few puppies. Um, there just aren't a lot of dogs anymore. And so we certainly don't want puppy mills to fill the demand where these, where these pets going to come from. And I don't know if you've worked with Island dogs, you probably have, but a lot of people say, well, there's all these dogs in Puerto Rico and Mexico. But according to the board of behaviors that I speak to, they're, they're not the same kind of dog as what we're used to here. They're a lot harder to, a lot harder to integrate within a home. Have you had experience with that? No, no, not not like um, not Puerto Rico and stuff. The the island dogs I have uh, uh, experienced is when I I lived in Hawaii. That's about it, and nobody neutered the dogs over there. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that funny how they're not? Then they they come together, and there's this um, damn they're like kumbaya. I can't figure can't figure that part out. You know, in the shelters you work with in California, are you do you still full of dogs, or is there getting to be fewer dogs for adoption? Oh no, they're full. They're full because. Um, I mean, you figure a, b- a big city like LA, 
You can clear the shelters right now. You can clear every single kennel in every shelter in LA, and they'll be filled tomorrow morning because you figure the streets of Los Angeles, there's so many strays. There's so many. Oh. It's like paint. It's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. You can adopt every dog out in the shelter today. They'll be filled with strays, new new income strays tomorrow. So, gosh, your intake, your intake is technically exactly what your what your uh, adoption rate is. You know, so that's why you're seeing still seeing so many dogs from the south. That's why I know a lot of them come from Louisiana and Mississippi and different places down there where there's we're, we're a lot of rural dogs too. Yeah, we do a lot of transports here, but we also do a lot of transports um, out of LA. So, in other words, uh, Canada, believe it or not, takes a lot of dogs that we have in the shelters here because they don't really have a um, a big issue in Canada. Yeah, cutie pie, cu- cutie pie, my little my little canine cocktail. He's from LA. He's a he's a cocktail from LA. He came up on Wings of Rescue because there's there's no small dogs up north. Just see no small dogs, and so um, it's it's what a what a what a great problem to have that we're down to where there's hardly any pets euthanized and we're talking about a shortage in some areas. I know that's a that's a blessing. I wish I could be more definitive about some of those questions, but it's it's really funny those those things about spay neuter. It brings up more. Uh, more questions you know that yeah it's so and one of the things that i really think and this is this is uh, a nod to your profession i think every shelter pet needs a relationship with a veterinarian and needs a relationship with a trainer i think every every uh pet parent pet guardian whatever you call it has a behavior that they would like to improve or needs to improve in their pet and i th- i i hope there's a time when there's a great shortage of of trainers, uh, because we, people see the need to, you know, you know, just to give them those kind of, uh, I guess we call it life skills almost for a pet to fully integrate and, and be able to, uh, um, uh, be social and, and not be paralyzed by, uh, uh, noise phobias and things that a lot of these are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you from experience, there is a shortage of trainers. There's a shortage of experienced trainers that have actually learned from someone. Um, believe it or not, the most common thing, I talk about this all the time, the most common thing I hear nowadays, because there's more trainers than ever, but there's also more trainers than ever that are claiming they're self-taught. You know what that means when you're self-taught? That means the person you learn from knew nothing. That's a fact. Right. And I hear that I hear that more and more nowadays. Thank I, I fortunately come from generations, literally generations of animal trainers that it's been passed down through a through generations through a long lineage, and you know whether you agree with my training or whether you you think I'm just you know complete crap. That's that's up to you to decide. But at least I have learned from mentors who were taught by mentors after mentor. I didn't just wing it and experiment on dogs and and let me see you know how many times it takes to get it right. Oh, okay, I just trained thirty dogs and the, the last one I got it right but I screwed up 29 of them, you know, but I'm hearing what I'm hearing that more and more nowadays is there's self-taught trainers. And what that is, it's just, first of all, it's lazy, Marty. It's lazy because that's almost like saying a veterinarian. If I went to a veterinarian and I'm like, what's your experience? He's like, well, I'm self-taught. I'm out of there. <laughs> I am out of there. So you, you know what, you know what I see too, Brandon, you know, back, uh, you're not, uh, you're not as old as I am, but these talk about a matchbook education. Cause when dad would buy a pack of cigarettes, there'd be a, a you know, they'd advertise on a, on a matchbook. And, 
now there's so many online trainers that never touch a pet and nobody nobody coaches them. Just what you're saying, you come from generations that would, would train you to be a trainer, right? And now they're taking an online course and they're seeing things they have no experience with them. And so you'll go to some of the chain stores and there's lots, there's a trainer and they're holding a class and I, I sit and I watch them. They don't know who I'm in. I'm some strange city and I'll watch and I'll just be shaking my head. They have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. We 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 talk about this all the time. Um there's a there's two kinds of a uh, there's two kinds of uh, experts out there. Two kinds of trainers. There's the uh there's the book expert, the book trainer, and there's the field expert, the field trainer. So in other words, the book expert, they read the books and then they try to apply the the techniques to the dog. And then the field trainers are the ones in the field. They just they've went out and they trained thousands and thousands of dogs. We di- we deal with the same thing on Shark Week, believe it or not. So I I do Shark Week every year, as you know. Um, and when I'm on the boat, it never ceases to amaze me. There's always the, there's always the, the lab expert on the boat with us, basically the scientist that has never seen a great white in their life. And so I know. And so here's, here's the way I describe it to people. Cause I think they're both important. I think it's important to read a book that way you understand that just the, the, you know, the full anatomy, you understand the breakdown of the, of the animal and you understand the history and, and. There's, there's important aspects in that, but I always tell people, I'm like, those books were once upon a time written by the people that had to go out there, put the wetsuits on, get in that cage and identify all the, all the, the personality traits and, and the motions the animal is going through. That way you can identify, okay, that's, that's ambivalence right there. That is a sign of aggression Next comes a strike. You know what I'm saying? Like great whites are classic for their pectoral fins. Whichever position those pectoral fins are, that is the that is the 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 mood they're in. And the 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 scientist did not know that from diving with the great white. The scientist learned that in a book, and the book was technically written by the field experts. And so this is why I get a lot of heat from from uh and you can probably agree with this too. I get a lot of heat from these uh, uh, you know, animal behaviorists with, uh, with, with actual degrees because they're like, you don't have a degree. How dare you call yourself a behaviorist? And I say, because I've literally trained thousands and thousands of dogs, I can identify behavior without looking at a book. I can identify the exact same thing that you read that you paid you know, $100,000 to get the degree. I just didn't go that route. The animal industry is full of that. The animal industry is full of field experts and, 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 and scientists and the scientists are in the lab and typically they never even see, you know, most of them don't even see an animal and the field experts are out in the field dealing with the animals constantly. And we were the, we're kind of the old, the original ones given the, given the data to the universities to put it in a book. So that's, that's the difference. And that's, that's where I always stand my ground every time someone ever comes at me in that angle. I say, I say, I say, I, I always, I always ask them, I say, I understand you have the PhD, but how many animals have you worked with? And they tell, they tell me, oh, I've worked with, you know, 200, uh, 300 dogs. I say, you're an amateur. I worked with 300 dogs by the time I was 12 years old. You know? It's really, I really like hearing your voice rise with enthusiasm when you talk about this, you know, with Fear Free, I can see now, having done this for 10 years, I can just tell by the eyes I don't have to look at really anything else, the the ear set or the furrowed brow or the rigidity or the tail. It's funny when you get, it, it just, it just, 
you know, puts an exclamation point on, on what you say. Yeah. By the way, you know, when I tell people, I know the, the host of, um, of Shark Week, it's pretty impressive. I'm like, a, <laughs> that's like something nice to have a friend like that, that I can throw this around sometimes, you know, <laughs> I'm 65 years old, you know, you know how competitive I am, like between, uh, Brendan and, and you and I, and, and, uh, I, I think when I go into the nursing home, I'm going to host Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marty, one more question before we go. Yes. Why do dogs hump? <laughs> This is the age-old question, and it's like eggs. Every ten years, the answer changes. Would, would, every ten, would every you... ten years, every ten years in the in the uh, in the animal industry. That's why I love reading these encyclopedias from like the nineteen forties. You, you know what? If I was if I was a dog, if I was a dog, I'd hump. I tell you that much. <laughs> no, uh, you know, you you go back about dominance. You go back about you know. Some people think it's a sign of dominance and submission, and and uh, it's funny though. Because it, it, it can't just be it can't just be dominance because I mean just in your own household when you see a dog that humps a teddy bear or humps a blanket that's yeah. not a dog it's obvious to them that's not another dog right yeah um, I I don't know I don't know if it's if it's reflexive I imagine there is some of that that's just reflexive but I know mm-hmm. when they get ad, when they get hyper excited it's not just related to you know a dog that's been sterilized that's that's sexual because a lot of times when they just get real excited, they'll get, get, get all of the blanket and stuff and start humping it. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know what, how do you answer it? That's, that's, you know, that's my, that's my answer to, to most things. When people ask, you know, those, those, those strange dog questions that we really don't know the, the, the true answers to. Um, I, I don't know because the thing is it gets, the answer gets changed every, every 10 to 20 years. If you notice, um, if you read a if you read a book, you know, like an, an encyclopedia about animals from the 1930s, all the information was completely debunked by the 1940s, and then the 50s, and, the, and every every 10 years, what we knew about animals, what we knew about you know the those personality traits, what we knew as fact, it was completely changed. You know, 10, 20 years later, it's just like like I said, it's just like the eggs, the eggs uh, uh, theory. Every 10 years, eggs are either good for you or they're going to kill you. Yeah, I remember. I remember apples too. Apples were there. Yeah, cholesterol is going to kill. Cholesterol is going to kill you. Or eggs are good. Good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. And you yeah. know, one thing. One thing I might. I might end with here, Brendan, is I don't want to. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm. I try to always be honest, whether I'm in the exam room or, or doing a podcast or on TV, is try to be an authentic messenger. I always tease Doctor Oz. You know, if you watch a Doctor Oz show, everything kills you. You know, the phone receiver I'm holding my hand kills me. The coffee mm-hmm. cup I haven't washed kills me. And I joke about it. I always want to look at, at at real threats. You know, something we know is a is a real threat. And because sometimes people get well, they want to get rid of the uh, the dog and not the problem. Right? They they yeah, like yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you a few things that I do know that I I'm convinced of if you want your dog to live longer, like I'm thinking of cutie pie here, right? My little buddy is five years old. If you want your dog to live longer, there's a couple of things you can do. One is some kind of daily oral care. And I'm not talking about brushing your pet's teeth because most people won't brush their pet's teeth. Um, there are studies in the veterinary profession, less than 5% of the people that work in the veterinary profession brush their pet's teeth, but you, you've got to have something to, to get stimulate oral health 
And there's products out in the store that have the veterinary oral health care seal of approval, greenies, milk, wounds, brushing chews, a uh, few things. There's some products like CET Hextra Chews that you can buy online that have chlorhexidine. Uh, there is a new product coming out called Bark Bright that has been studied by boarded veterinary, uh, boarded veterinary dentists, of which there's 170, by the way. I think people would be surprised to know there's boarded veterinary dentists. What thing is? So that's one thing. Number two. So some kind of daily oral care. I don't care if it's CET, Hextra Chews, milk bone brushing chews, or Bark Bright. Something every day you do for dental care. Number two is keep your pet at or near its ideal body weight. And that's about what it weighed at a year of age. Uh, you know, talk to your vet if you want to, you know, go through the uh, body condition scoring. But basically, you want to be able to feel your dog's ribs under a light layer of fat. If you look at your dog from the side in, in profile, you should see a tucked abdomen. And if you look from above, you should see an indentation at the waist. So keep them close to their ideal body weight. And the third thing, and and Brennan, I bet you probably hit their symbols on this one, is is exercise. You got to feed the dog's body as well as the mind. And you got to something, you know, these dogs have these very athletic bodies that are born for movement and they don't get enough activity, mental activity or physical activity. You do those three things, you're going to help your, your pet live a happier, healthier, fuller life. And also, I should put in a fourth thing, is regular regular veterinary care. We, you know, we're trained to look past obvious problems to potential problems. And there's no, you know, I remember I did a show on Dr. Oz about dental health. And Dr. Oz, America's doctor, as Oprah introduced him, had never looked inside his dog's mouth until the night before the show. <laughs> and it was a six-year-old yeah, dog. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you do need regular veterinary care to uh, to look at preventive care and catch things in that early phase. Awesome, uh, uh, Marty. Where can people read more about your uh, your uh, Fear Free? I, if they want to look at my website, it's drmartybecker.com. Uh, follow me on Facebook, but I'd go to fearfreehappyhomes.com. There's over a million dollars worth of animated content on there, and it's free to the public. And if anybody's in the shelter community, go to fearfreeshelters.com. Again, that's free to all shelters. And uh, it's, uh, you know, for me, Brendan, this is a charity play. It's to is to make some major impacts with sustained ripples to look at the emotional well-being of animals. And I, um, I sure appreciate being on your show and appreciate our friendship. And anything we can do to jab it to Evan Anton. Um, any of the other listen out there, go to Evan Anton. He's the world's second sexiest <laughs> veterinarian. And uh, he'll catch up. I feel like after talking to you today, I, I mean, I, like I read an encyclopedia, you, you gave a lot of good information that I, I never knew myself. So Marty, uh, Marty Becker, America's veterinarian, uh, very, America's sexiest veterinarian, Evan Anton is second, as we all know. Thank you. That's the most important. <laughs> Marty, thanks for coming on the show, brother. I'm glad we did this. Blessings, brother. Okay, that does it for today, folks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, share, rate, or review if you like this episode. And also be sure to follow me on Instagram at Animal Brandon, Facebook at Animal Brandon, and Twitter at Brandon McMillan. We are out of here. I will see you soon, folks. Till then, be good. <laughs>